The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at overlandpark.cc. Well, welcome to Overland Park Community Church. It's great to have you guys again back online again this week. And we want to go again into the book of Hosea. And I want you, if you will, just to be reminded of the first time you laid eyes on your, your spouse, especially if you're a man, um, you know, like the first time you see your wife and, and, and man, your heart just like, and you start to think about her and you start dating and you, you just can't, can't wait to see them again. And, and, and you just had this experience with this person that you fall in love with. And, and so like, um, I'm just reminded of, of the first time that, that I saw Abby and, and, and even going forward as we began to date, man, I just thought, she's this, this woman, this girl is beautiful. And I got pictures of her and I wanted to keep pictures of her in my truck. I still keep a picture of her in my office and I think she's absolutely beautiful. And so um, today as we learn from Hosea, we're going to see something that I think is really um, cool about how the Lord views his people. And so um, as we go to Hosea chapter 9, man, we've been learning a whole lot about how God has just been leaning into his people, man. It just sounds so strong, so hard, so difficult. And today we get get into a word again, man, that it has that feeling, uh, that strong, like, um, it almost feels condemning, but I think you're, we're, we're reading it wrong. We're not, we're not seeing it from God's perspective as being a time of condemnation. It's what he's doing with his people is he's trying to get their attention because of his great and sincere and deep love for them. And, and the direction that they're going is going to keep them from experiencing all that he desires for them. And so it's, it's important for us to read the hard sayings of the truth of the word and understand it's not that God, man, is, is, is saying, turn or burn. He's saying, man, turn or, or things are not going to be good for you. And, and I want things to be good for you. I want to be walking with you. I want you to experience an incredible blessing in your life. And so we're going to go to Hosea chapter um, 9 and, um, and just kind of dive in. And I'll point some things out. And then I'm going to give you some applications that have been extremely encouraging to me. And hopefully they, they will be encouraging to you as well. And he, he starts, and, and again, remember, he talked to him about you know, sow the wind, reap the whirlwind was last week. And so this week he jumps in and he, he kind of is just laying in a little deeper because he knows the direction um, that they're going. And he says, do not rejoice, O Israel. Do not be jubilant like the other nations. For you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at the threshing floor. Threshing floors and wine presses will not feed the people. The new wine will fail them. He says, they will not remain in the Lord's land. Ephraim will return to Egypt and eat unclean food in Assyria. They will not pour out wine offerings to the Lord, nor will their sacrifices please him. Such sacrifices will be to them like the bread of mourners. He says, all who eat them will be unclean. This food will be for themselves. It will not come into the temple of the Lord. What will you do on the day of your appointed feast, on the festival days of the Lord? You see how the Lord is trying to lean into him? He's like saying, man, you're going to be in a position where you're not even able to even offer false sacrifices because of the direction that you're living. He's like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do on those appointed days when you can't even have those festivals? He says, even if they escape from destruction, 
Egypt will gather them and, and Memphis will bury them. Their treasures of silver will be taken over by briars and thorns will overrun their tents, meaning that everything that they can purchase, all that they prized, all the material possessions that they had, they said they're, they're going to be overtaken by, by briars and thorns, even their, their tents, which would in, indicate their homes. It says, the days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this. And, and listen to this. This is a very telling verse. Because your sins are so many and your hostility is so great, the prophet is considered a fool. The inspired man, a maniac. When sins become so great, God says, men, that the prophet looks like a fool and the inspired man, a, a, a maniac. And he says, the prophet along with my God is the watchman over Ephraim. Yet snares await him on all his paths and hostility in the house of his God. They have sunk deep into corruption as in the days of Gabeah. And, and, and he's referring to whenever, back in Judges, there was a time where these men came to this guy's house. So he was traveling and he stayed at this, this, this house and they came and they said, come out. We want to have sex with you. And the man was like, no, man. And he put his concubine out there. And they raped her all night and then left her on the doorstep for dead. And, and it led to this, this very destructive time. And, and God is saying, man, the sin and your corruption has, has gotten that far. It's gotten that bad. There's so much sexual perversion going on in, in what you're tolerating and what you're experiencing. And he says, you, you've sunk to that level of cor corruption. And he says, God will remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. And he says this. I love this verse. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your fathers, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. But when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory will fly away like a bird. See, God is wanting, he's wanting to pour out glory on them because they're, they're his chosen people. And he's saying, man, because of the corruption, because of your disobedience, because of your rebellion against me, it's like your glory will fly away like a bird. And then he says this, no birth, no pregnancy, no conception. And what's that about, man? Well, that's about the promise of Abraham. The promise was to make him a father of many nations, that they were just going to multiply and multiply. And what's he say? No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they rear children, he says, I will bereave them of every one. Woe to them when I turn away from them. I've seen Ephraim like Tyree planted in a pleasant place. But Ephraim will bring out their children to the slayer. And this is, this is very interesting. Right here, like, like Hosea, he stops to pray. As he's making this, God is giving him this, this, this prophecy that he's prophesying to the people of God. He, he tries to pray in the midst of it. And he, he says, give them, O Lord. And then you'll see the NIV has a, a dash mark. He just stops. And he says, what will you give them? Like Hosea doesn't even know how to pray for them. There's only one other time that we see a hyphen like this in, in a prayer in the Bible, and it's when the people of Israel, the, the nation of Israel was at the Mount, at Mount Sinai, and, God, and Moses was up on the mountain meeting with God, and God, you know, he tells them what, 
what the people are doing is they make the golden calf and they've, they've, they've forgotten about God even delivering them from Israel. And Moses starts to pray and, and he stops just like that. And, and so he's, as he's praying, and I don't know, man, uh, if you've ever had people there that you've tried to pray for. It's like if people aren't living for God, you don't even know what to pray for them for. You, you get scared a little bit. I've had people that I've wanted to pray for that I know were strung out and addicted on things or they just weren't following God. They weren't listening to God. And I, I find myself wanting to pray and and it's like scary to pray for them because you don't know what's going to happen to them as you give them over to the Lord. And that's where Hosea is at. He's like, he's like, give them, oh Lord. What will you give them? Like you can't give them anything. There's nothing you can do in their lives um, in, in regards to blessing them. And he says, give them wombs that miscarry and breasts that are dry. Now, this, this sounds like a very harsh thing for Hosea to, to pray for. And I'll give you some commentary on it here in a second. And he says, because of all their wickedness in Gilgal, I, have, I hated them there. Because of their sin-filled deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will no longer love them. All their leaders are rebellious. Ephraim is blighted. Their root is withered. They yield no fruit. Now remember, Jesus talks about us bearing fruit in John chapter 10. And again, Jesus is no different than the God speaking to the Old Testament. It's all about fruit and being reproductive in our lives. And, and he says, they, the, the, the root is withered, they bear no fruit. Even if they bear children, I will slay their cherished offspring. My God will reject them because they have not obeyed him. They will be wanderers among the nations. And that was soon to come to pass. They would go off into exile um, and they wouldn't be able to have um, a, a families. They wouldn't multiply as easily because now they're going to be used as slaves in a foreign land. And things where their freedom was going to be taken away from them. And so as Hosea makes those uh, statements about the womb being barren and dry, basically he said, man, don't let this generation be uh, very large because it's going to suffer. And, and so that's what that prayer is about. It's not just about that God would strike a woman and, and he would want her to be miserable and have miscarriages. It's more about the generation that would be living in the midst of that time. And he's praying much like Jesus when he says that at the end of time when he comes back, he says that it's going to be horrible for pregnant women. Like it's, it's not a good situation. So it's a, it's a similar prayer to that. But as we, as we look at this and we unpack it um, today, I want to give you a few things um, that I think are incredibly powerful and extremely encouraging. And so we see what Israel did wrong. We see that, man, there, there's extreme judgment for them. And God is raining down his judgment and his wrath upon them, as we've been learning throughout this whole series, God will do. And so for us as a body of believers, and as we're trying to uh, focus on how do we make application to this in the year 2020, man, and, and how, do we, how, do we, how do we look at this and go, how does this apply to my life? Well, there are things that, man, we can learn about God that we can know and be encouraged by. We don't want to make Israel's mistakes. That's, that's the history we have here of this nation is there's, there's stuff to avoid and things to capitalize on and understand about the heart of God. And the first thing that I want you to see in this is that the Lord loves his vision for finding people. And so a lot of times we talk about salvation and we make it this real individual thing. But salvation is not just about you when you are saved from your sins. And my salvation is not just about me. It's about God's heart for salvation. It's about God restoring things to perfection. And it will be done through the, his salvation, his, his salvation from the coming wrath that will come on the world. And so as God saves a soul like he saves me, and, and I'm yielding obedience to that man, the Lord he uses me to reach other people, and he uses you to reach other people. That's why we have the Great Commission, 
to go and make disciples that make disciples. And so salvation is not just about me. It's about God, man. It's about his plan that he wants to save the world. He wants, he wants all men to come to a saving knowledge of him. He, he cares about the plants. He cares about the animal kingdom. He cares about um, the environment. They're all his. He made them. He created them. And so as God, when we think in terms of salvation, it's bigger than us individually. But we can't play a part in it unless we're individually saved. And so when we look at this, it says in verse 10, when I found Israel. He says, he says man, when I found Israel. What he's talking about is when he first made the promise, he's talking about the patriarchs. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on a fig tree. And so the Lord describes choosing us like finding fruit in the desert. He's like, he, he describes himself as an anthropomorphic terminology where he's taking on like what it would be like to be a man walking in the desert. And you're walking in the desert and you're parched and you're hungry and they're thirsty. And all of a sudden you come across this tree where it's, there shouldn't be a tree in it. It just happens to have some ripe fruit on it. And it's so enticing and so, so good. And God's saying, man, I see my people that way. When I find my people, it's like an experience for me that way. I, I'm, I'm reminded of how thirsty you might be when you're, you're, you're maybe out and you're, you're walking somewhere. And, and maybe you're out in the middle of nowhere. You just imagine you're out in Arizona or something walking in the midst of the desert. And you decided to wander a little bit. And you, you wandered off down on a road and you thought you could just take this way. And, and you end up walking for hours. And, and you're thirsty, man. And you come up on a gas station and it's closed, but there's a soda machine there. And you just so happen to have enough change in your pocket to get you a refreshing soda, man. And you know, you know that feeling that you have when you're thirsty. Well, that's like, a lot like what the, what the Lord is describing here. He says, man, when I find a person, when I found Israel, when I found them, man, it was, it was like that experience. It just did something um, for who he is in his DNA as the God and creator of the universe. And I'm reminded of, of a guy in the, in the New Testament, Jesus, uh, talking to him, man. He says, his name is Zacchaeus. And he's a short dude, man. He, he's a tax collector. He's outcast from society. Nobody likes him because he's the one that's collecting taxes. And he's become wealthy over getting a portion of what he collects um, for the Roman government. And so he's a little short dude and Jesus is in town. And he goes up in a sycamore tree to get up high so he can see Jesus because he's heard so many great things he's done. Jesus comes walking by, man, and he stops and he looks up into the tree. And he says, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I must stay at your house today. And the people are like, what? He's going to eat with a sinner. Why would Jesus go and hang out with this dude? And, and, and the people start murmuring and talking as Jesus says he's going to go hang out with this dude. And, and Zacchaeus says, Lord, he says, I'll give 50% of my, all that I own back to the poor. And if I've defrauded anybody, I'll pay them back four times as much. Boom, transformation. Like this guy was saved, man. He encountered the Christ, and the Christ shifted his heart. And now he's bent toward the Lord, and he didn't care about the things that he possessed. He cared about possessing the Christ that was in front of him. And so his life was transformed in a moment, and Jesus says this at the end of that story. He says to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek 
and to save the lost. And so, like, man, when you look at that. When lost people are found, it says that they become one of the sons of Abraham. What does that mean? Like the, the sons of promise. The original promise was given to Abraham. And so it was a promise that we would be a part of a nation, a great nation, the kingdom of Christ. And so the, he see, like when, when we think about the Lord, what we must be reminded of is he, this is how he sees this experience of finding someone he chooses. Like the book of Galatians tells us that just at the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, to redeem mankind. Ephesians tells us that he chose us before the creation of the world. Like, man, that blows me away, man. The thing of the Lord, like he looked down at me and he, he's, he saw Jimmy Holbrook. And when I was found, man, he said it was like he was, he was a, a person in a, in a desert barren land and all of a sudden I was like a fruit tree. And he looked at me and it brought delight to him in all of his existence. And so as you run from God, man, you're doing just the opposite. Like all he wants is he wants you to experience being discovered by him and realize that he has chosen you. And when salvation comes to your house, man, you become a refreshing um, tree that's filled with fruit and all the loaded potential that you could be used in the kingdom. And that, again, always ties us back. It doesn't matter where we're at in the word. It always ties us back to the great commission to be fruitful. <laughs> that's what he told the first people he created, be fruitful and multiply. That's what he told Abraham. You're going to be fruitful and be a father of many nations. And it wasn't about the physical seed. It was about the spiritual seed. That's what he told um, David, that he would always have a descendant that was sat on the throne. And that's what he told his apostles. And that's what he says to you, that you're going to be fruitful. You're going to multiply, man. I chose you. Like just let, that, let that sink in for a minute. The Lord chose us. And, and that's, that's what the experience for him is like. He himself describes it that way. That he is thrilled by that experience and that discovery of a lost person being found. That's why the scripture tells us there's more rejoicing in heaven over one, one sinner who comes to repentance. And so don't delay, man, as the Lord, if the Lord is choosing you, like, quit running. I quit running and understand that this is the greatest experience you could ever have on the planet. There's nothing better. And so that's why God mentions it here in this text. As he's talking to them about horrible thing, how horrible things are going to be for them, he's reminding them it's all about the choice and that I want to give this life to you. Now, here's the deal. As that brings us to our next takeaway, is this, it's the Lord's vision is about his land and his life. Okay? Like we, there's a popular pre preacher, Joel Osteen. And he's preaching like heretical doctrine. And the great bestseller that he adds is your best life now. And he just talks about how you use God like a slot machine. It's not your best life now. When you come to Jesus, it's his best life now. He is born, he is resurrected in you. It's about his land and it's about his life. As we look at the nation of Israel, he, it's all about the land. It's about a nation. That's why I talked to you last week and teaching you that it was a theocracy. And it's how God was interacting with the nation when we get to the New Testament. It's still a nation that he's interacting with, but he's interacting individually and he's saving the soul of the person. He grasps the Gentile in with the Jew. We become part of a spiritual Israel. We are the church. We are spiritually a part of the kingdom of Christ and the promise that was given to Abraham. Lost people being found. 
and delighting the heart of the Lord and becoming fruitful. And so it's about the land in, in the uh, Old Testament with the nation of Israel. It's always been about the land. And, and this is what he says in verse 3 of our text. They will not remain in what? The Lord's land. You're not going to remain in my land anymore. And so what is God doing in this, in this particular text? He's evicting them from the promised land. You're evicted. I brought you out of the nation of Egypt and you were slavery. I made you into a nation. I gave you a good law. I love you and I've cared for you, but you have rebelled against all that I've given you. You're ignoring my word. You don't know anything about my word. You're just living your life how you want to live it. And so I'm evicting you from the land. And soon after, they would be evicted and they would be taken into captivity. And no longer would they be free as a nation to follow the law of God. They would be oppressed by a foreign land and they wouldn't even be able to observe their festivals. They're able to observe their festivals right now. They were the festivals that God gave them. And they're able to do it, but they've ignored it and they change it into something else. And so they've become syncretists and they're mixing in things with their culture and the things that, that God has asked them to do. And as they begin to do that, then what happens is, is they're, they're a blaspheming against God because they're not honoring and respecting what he said. They're deciding what they want it to be, and they want to take some of what God said and a lot of what they want to happen, mix it together in syncretism, and say this is pleasing to the Lord. And God's saying it's not pleasing. And the same thing is happening in our culture today is that people in the kingdom are claiming to be in the kingdom and they're bringing things in from Christianity and they're bringing things in that they want. And the law is not the law of God, it's the law of love now. It's the law of human love and humanism. And then mix that together and you have syncretism in, the, in, the, in our culture today just like they had it in this day and time. And God is evicting them from the promised land. And he's saying, you will not remain in the land. You can't live in the Lord's land if you don't abide by the Lord's law. That's the takeaway for us. Okay? So it's about the land. But for us, it's about the life. In Israel's Old Testament teaching, it's about the promised land. For you and I, it's about the promised life. What did Jesus say? That the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I've come to give you an abundant life. Not a life as you decide, not your best life now, but my best life in you now. That's, that's Christian teaching. That's New Testament teaching is that when we realize it's Jesus living in us and deciding how he wants us to live, not us telling Jesus how much of his life he gets. That's why Jesus said if you want to find your life, lose it. If you want to be my disciple, take up your cross, kill yourself because I'm going to reign and rule in your life. It's his best life now. It's not your best life now. It's his life in you. And if you do not abide um, in the word, you can't live in the promised life. And that's the problem we have in the American church today. Is we have too many people claiming to be like a part of the kingdom. And they can't live the promised life because they won't abide in the word. Jesus is the word. Okay, so it's abiding in all that he said and taught and, 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 and abiding in him as the Logos. He is the explanation of God and yielding to, uh, yielding to the divine revelation that he's given us in the word of God and submitting to its authority in our lives instead of trying to be the authority over the word and making an interpretation that we can swallow. No, Man, we just receive the word as it is. And the, and the Lord says, man, if you, want, if you want to live the promised life, you got to abide in my word. And if you don't, guess what? I will evict you from the promised life. 
And so he said, man, are you saying I can lose my salvation? I don't think this is talking about salvation. And even if it is, I don't really think you can. And I've never been worried about my salvation except for when I was not living for God. And so this is not about eternal security, which is probably a doctrine that has is, is, is hurt us. It's because we're so hung up on something that we don't need to be worried about. When you are in love with Jesus, you are eternally secure, and you never think about, like, rebel. you don't want to rebel against him. You just, and when you do find out that you're rebelling against him because you've been transformed and Christ lives in you, you immediately want to repent because your heart is no longer bent away from God. It's bent toward God. So when the Lord does a work in you, I believe you can be eternally secure. I'm, I'm as secure as I've ever been in my life, man. And it's not based upon my performance. It's based upon my understanding of who the Lord is. And I never want to be far from him. I never want to be far from him. And that's, that's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if you don't abide in the word, I must evict you from the promised life. And I think this has to do with the blessing of God. The people of Israel were still the people of Israel. They were just living in captivity now. They were living like prisoners, though they should have been free as they followed the Lord. So they were still the people of Israel, but they were living in a foreign land because they were evicted from the promised land that was given uh, to them when they were led out of the nation of, uh, of bondage of Egypt. And so I think that we could make that application is that, man, if God does a work in our lives and we're saved by the blood of the lamb and we quit abiding in the word and what it teaches us and we start making our own way, we can get evicted from all the promises of that abundant life that Jesus said was ours. And that's why he says the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy because he will get you to work against the truth of the scripture and convince yourself in your own mind and, and you start getting led away and you get evicted from living the promised life. Hosea chapter, um, uh, the, in our text, um, verse 9, um, 7 teaches us something very important. And, and it is that when we're evicted from the blessing, we're evicted from the blessing because sin separates us from God. It's just a natural product and logical flow of how things must work in order for it to make any sense at all is that we must be evicted because we are walking in sin and so therefore we are separated from God and no longer can the blessing of heaven fall on our lives which is the purpose that he saves us for that we might bring heaven to earth and so that is the blessing of God and and so when in verse 7 the latter part of it he says this because your sins are so many and your hostility so great, the prophet is considered a fool. Now, there are some who would be listening to me right now and say, you are a fool for some of the things you're saying. And I would say to you, the only reason you think that is because your sin is so great. If your sin wasn't so great in your life, you would be in agreement with, you, with me because all I'm doing is teaching you from the word of God. I'm not teaching you about my opinion. I'm not teaching you what, what I, I, I would like. You know what I would like if it was all left up to me is I would just say there's no such thing as sin. That way I could have everybody uh, like uh, in a room together and we could just all be sing kumbaya together. But I'm not God. I'm just one who's been called to preach the word of God and, and, and proclaim what is there. And so like, the, like when, when your sins become great, he says, man, it, what happens is, is that uh, you, the, the prophet is considered a fool. And then he goes on and he says, the inspired man, a maniac. So the prophet is a fool and the inspired man is a maniac because sins are so great. And man, you could, like you see this happening. 
You see this happening all the time if you, if you, if you stay in tune with the culture and what's happening in pop culture and, and the media and other things. You will see that people will think that people who believe like I do are fools and people who are inspired of the Lord are maniacs. They're just stupid people. But the reason they think that is because their sins are so great and it's separated them from God. And what the Lord is teaching us, this word inspired here, um, the Hebrew word behind it, it means breath or wind or spirit. And it's closely identified with the Lord. And so he's like, man, people who are like walking with me is what he's saying. It would be the equivalent of a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. It is a person who's walking in the power of the Spirit and God is leading them and they're listening as best they can to the grace that they've received. He said these people, um, like, like, like sin makes people look at spiritual people like that as maniacs. <laughs> they're just maniacs. You see, when we are separated, what happens when we are separated from God because of sin, we lose spiritual perception. If we've never been united to God and been, like we talk about all the time, and I'm constantly teaching you about in this salvation, this doctrine and this teaching of salvation from the New Testament. Like doctrine is not a bad word, okay? Our denomination can kind of get jacked up a little bit, I understand. But doctrine is a good word. It just means teaching. And the teaching or doctrine of salvation is that, that, that when that happens, we have spiritual perception, and that's what Jesus said, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you become alive to spiritual things. And if you're separated from God, you've never had any spiritual perception. And if you have had spiritual perception and you don't get into the word and let the Lord take you on a journey and start growing you and taking you through the, the, um, the, the process of, of spiritual growth or sanctification, if you will, as you're growing spiritually and you're learning to surrender more and more of your life to the Lord, then what happens is the enemy can easily sw- slip in, influence you, and lead you astray, and you can lose your sensitivity to your spiritual perception. And that's what he's saying here is that when that happens or, or if, it's, if you've never had that connection with the Lord, you're morally blind, That's why you think a person who walks this way is a fool or a maniac. It's because morally you just can't see it. And so I get why people think that. But what's important for us in the kingdom to understand is that we get why people think that and that we understand that our mission is to go and take the gospel to the world that is lost and perishing and to make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. That's why the world is broken. It's because we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. And when the lights come on for us, we we start to realize, okay, this thing is about Jesus. It's not about me anymore. It's about me surrendering my life to him. And so when when we're separated and we lose that spiritual perception and become morally blind, look, he says in verse 1, stop rejoicing. He tells them, quit rejoicing like all the other nations. Now, why is he saying that? He's saying because you can't, if you can't enjoy God, and you belong to him, you can't enjoy life. Like, it's just impossible. And so when he talks about rejoicing, he's talking about joy. Now, joy is a word that is used by people in the kingdom and out of the kingdom. But it doesn't mean the same thing for people in the kingdom that it does in people out of the kingdom. Joy means happiness for people on the outside of the kingdom. For people on the inside of the kingdom, it means spiritual fruit. 
It is something that is bared out in our lives, and it causes rejoicing from the mouth. That's why we sing in services, and we, and we start with worship. It's because we like to sing, man. We like to worship. It is the fruit of joy being expressed on our lips and giving praise to God. And as we do that, then what happens is, man, we are walking in joy. And, and, and so that's what they were doing. They were having these festivals, and they were, they were trying to rejoice. And he says, stop doing that. Like, stop doing that. You don't have any joy. You're faking it. That's what he's saying to them. He says, you, you can't enjoy, if you can't enjoy me, you can't rejoice in the way that you're trying to make it look like you are rejoicing. Joy and blessing are only found in the presence of God. And if sin has separated you from God, then you don't have joy and blessing. So the Lord tells them to stop doing that. Stop acting and faking it because you don't have it. In verse 12, he says, I will turn away from you. It's a terrible day when the Lord turns away. Okay? Again, are we saying that he's going to turn away and, 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 I, and I, don't, I don't want you to get hung up on salvation. I want you to be focused on the life, the, the blessing of God on your life. If you are a person who has been saved by the blood of the Lamb and you stop listening to the Lord, he has no choice but to turn away from you because it's worse than a person who's never been saved by the blood of the lamb and not listening because you've tasted it, you've experienced it, and you're walking in rebellion. And so he turns away. What does he turn away? Any blessing from heaven that might fall on your life. So you think you're in control of your life. You think that you're making all the decisions. You're not. Like God is in control of the entire universe. And if he has chosen you, it is important for you to understand that he wants to pour out blessing in your life and you faking that you have the blessing and rejoicing when you really don't have any joy in your life is problematic. And so he says to the nation, stop rejoicing that way. He says, I will turn from them. I have to. Why does he have to? Because he can't bless a person who is walking in rebellion to him. Okay, so we're not saying, well, does that mean, Jimmy, that you have to be perfect? No, there is none perfect. There never has been to save Jesus Christ. But it does mean that we should strive for living in that holiness like Jesus taught us to. It doesn't mean that, that, that that's how we please him. But it does mean that when we're striving for it and sin is a big deal to us, and we know we've offended somebody and hurt their feelings, we are people of confession and so we strive for it and we recognize, man, the blessing of God falls on my life as I walk in fellowship with him. And I don't want sin to come between me and him. And that's all that it does. And so when I recognize sin in my life, I confess it. And so it's not about walking in a state of perfection, but it is about seeking to be pleasing to the Lord in all things so that we're walking in fellowship and he can pour out the blessing and the blessing as it comes upon our lives and we see it in the goodness of God and the wickedness of our hearts because we know that we could never do anything to please God unless he helped us, then that causes rejoicing in our souls and joy is produced. And that's why the world, their, their definition of joy is not the same thing as a believer's definition of joy. They don't even know what we're talking about. And it's important that we walk in it because it is one of the primary um, Things that will enable us to make disciples that make disciples. People need to be seeing other people in the world that are enjoying their lives, man. And if you're never enjoying your life, then there's something wrong with you and your relationship with God. Because when you walk with God, it doesn't matter if you're in prison. You can sing like Paul and Silas. 
See, like that's what the Lord is trying to show them. He's not trying to beat them up, nor am I in this strong preaching. I'm trying to teach you, man. I'm trying to teach you how you can walk with the Lord and the blessing of God can fall on your life. It is his land and his life. It is not your land and your life. Verse 6, he says um, that that, that their treasure, he says their treasure is taken over by briars and thorns. Now, what is treasure? It's stuff. They're silver and gold. Silver and gold was their means to be able to buy things. In our day and age, our treasure would be our homes, our pets, our furniture, our cars, our clothes. Like, like our stuff, man, is taken over, he says, by thorns and briars. What is that? That's the curse. It's the curse of the world. So their stuff is taken over by thorns and briars because they're not walking in fellowship with God. You remember that when when Adam and Eve, the first humans, sinned, what did God say to them? It is by the sweat of your brow and thorns and thistles will now grow up and things will be more difficult for you to achieve. And so now he's saying the curse is going to wrap itself around your stuff. I'm I'm blown away by this. Because really what the Lord is showing us is that we forfeit the good things of this world when we love them more than the best thing in this world. Like like you can't enjoy your stuff if you can't enjoy God. Like you can't really, really enjoy it. Like I have stuff. I like stuff, man. I like to get me some stuff. But what the Lord is saying to me, man, if I'm rebelling against him, My stuff is going to have thorns and thistles on it. And if I'm not rebelling, it's not going to be plagued with thorns and thistles. And what we see here is learning how to live with your stuff above the curse. (laughs) Why would you want to spend all that labor and that toil to buy all those things that you enjoy that are okay? And put them below the curse instead of above the curse. And what I mean here is like a person might get a a, a shiny new thing, the latest thing, okay? Let's say uh, a television. I don't know what a television. They they get a new TV, a new tool. Let me go tools. Tools are more my, my vein. You might get a brand new tool that you're able to do a lot of different things with. And it does all this cool stuff. Well, Nothing like a believer can go buy that tool and an unbeliever or a rebellious believer can go buy that tool. This is what this is teaching. A believer who's walking in fellowship with the Lord has that tool above the curse. And a person who's rebelling against the Lord has that tool below the curse. So it doesn't matter if we spend the same amount of money and buy the same exact tool. If I'm living above the curse, I will enjoy the tool more than you ever could. And that's all your stuff. Lay that over all your stuff. That means that you could have a brand new car and I could have an old crappy car like I do and I could enjoy my car more than you enjoy your car because your car is below the curse and mine's above the curse. And that's the abundant life that Jesus talks about. That's how we become satisfied and content. We don't need more and more. All we want more and more of is Jesus. And then all the stuff that's around us that he gives us to accomplish the work of the kingdom is just a blessing and we can enjoy it regardless of what it is. And so that's what the Lord is saying, man, is he's like, I will evict you from the land. You will be evicted from the promised land. And he's saying to us, you will be evicted from the promised life. 
Again, just I can't pour out blessing on you when you're walking in rebellion against me. That's what the Lord is saying in this text. And then we get to the final thing, man. The final takeaway is don't wander. Live his life. Don't be a wanderer. Live his life, man. Look at verse 17. He says, my God will reject them because they have what? 